Paul's letter to the Ephesians, <laughs> he tells us things how to do what God would have us to do. And Ephesians is interesting. I want you to have the book open in front of you with your Bible you brought with you or one of the pew Bibles or on your app because what you'll notice is that the book of Ephesians, it's been our sermon series, uh, it splits very nicely into two sections. The first three chapters talk to us about the nature of God and tells us about God's willingness to choose us and to adopt us and to raise us up to new life. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6, the second part of that, tells us what to do about it. Us things, what are we supposed to do about that? It's the so what question. We know that God so loved us and gave his life for us, so what or so that? Paul helps us begin answering those. And part of what Paul is reminding the early church and and what scripture reminds us of today is that God's people are set apart. We're called to, to be different, truly. To be in the world but not of the world, if you want to think about it that way. But to love the world that God has set in motion. We're to lead observable lives, identifiable lives, because the world is watching. Our neighbors are listening to our conversations with one another and how we uh, relate to our children or to our spouse, they're listening. Our colleagues and co-workers, they're, they're listening and observing. They know what we say around the coffee pot and at various other times and places. And well, apparently the church in Ephesus was being guided by Paul to be observable, identifiable, different. And the challenge for the early church which Rome had something to say about that. You cannot say Jesus Christ is Lord, Caesar is Lord. So this was truly revolutionary and would potentially cost them their lives, and it did. This was an extraordinary claim to say there's a countercultural movement of, of Christians in the world that have something alternative to say about empire and politics and dominance and what power really is, it comes through service and servitude. It comes through washing feet like Jesus did. So here we are, we things called the church, being exhorted by Paul to lead lives worthy of our calling. We heard that last week. But from chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 15. But I want you to keep it open. I want to reference the 14 verses prior to that. But from chapter 5, beginning in verse 15, listen now for the word of the Lord. Paul says, Be careful how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, let the words of my mouth bring you praise. Let the words that I speak be seasoned with your love and grace. May the things, O oh Lord, that I choose to say bring glory, not shame, to your name this day. 
Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts bring you praise. Amen. How many of you grew up um, reciting, memorizing what's called the serenity prayer? Do you know the serenity prayer? You can probably say it with me. A few of you, yeah. God, grant me serenity to accept the things that I cannot, what? Change. Courage to change the things that I can. And wisdom to know what? The difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Grant me serenity to accept what I cannot change, courage to change what I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Or as the song says, grant us wisdom. Grant us courage for the facing of this hour. Wisdom to know the difference between what we can and cannot change or who we can and cannot change. And can we really change someone after all? They sound a little like fatalistic sort of questions because ultimately we need to figure out ways to allow God to change us. You know, we say let there be peace on earth but let it begin with me or let, let the world change, Lord. I want the world to be different. I want there to be peace and hope and I want things to be eradicated that need to be eradicated. Okay, great, God says. Let's start, let's start right at home. Let's start with you. That's wisdom is knowing what we're being told and then having an ethical response and enough courage to do something about it. Uh, these words from this serenity prayer are frequently recited and frequently used in recovery groups. And the reason why is they help participants frame her or his pathway. That is the old pathway that has led to anything but fruitfulness. It has led to a spiral of, of bad decisions, bad relationships, it's impacted families, friends, communities, job. But then to reframe it in such a way that says, Lord, help me to have peace and serenity and courage and wisdom, that becomes a pathway to new life. And it will require inward serenity and bold courage and wisdom, all three of which are basically an antithesis to the life that has ventured off course. Because the opposite of having serenity is choosing to remain in a chaotic world based on chaotic decisions with chaotic consequences. The opposite of, of courage and having courage to face our demons, having courage to face all that troubles us and blights us is, is weakness of the will to give in to those same demons and same challenges. And the opposite of wisdom is selfishness. It's thinking about self and not others. And so here we are with a letter from a letter that's nearly 2,000 years old where Paul is telling the church, be careful how you live, not as the unwise, but as wise, making most, the most of your time. Those three things are where I want to spend time today. Uh, some translations say, be careful how you walk. And that's important. If you still have your Bible open, you'll notice that in verse uh, 1 of chapter 5, it talks about this. Walk in the way of life just as Christ walked and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering. And so all through the first part of chapter 5, Paul is saying, walk in the way of life. Walk in light as a child of the light. Walk in love. And then we get to, to this particular verse and it says, be careful how you walk or how you live not as unwise, 
but as wise. Because God's people are not designed to become partners with deceit or immorality or chaotic living, that which makes the world so dark, for we are children of the light. And then I can't help but think, I wish the lectionary had not uh, glossed over there, skipped over uh, verse 14, because it's a marvelous hymn. Uh, you see it there written, it says, Awake, thou that sleep, rise from the dead, Christ will shine on you. I love, love that hymn. And one of my favorite sermons from John Wesley, who founded the Methodist movement, is entitled just that. It comes from this verse, Awake, thou that sleepest. It's a wonderful sermon. I commend it to you. I've asked Papa John from time to time, well, who are those who sleep? He says the poor unawakened sinner who has no knowledge of himself is the one who sleeps. He is full of disease. He doesn't even know it. He thinks he's in perfect health. The sleeper is the sinner satisfied in sin, ignorant of how the disease is beginning to eat away from inside. He, he goes on to say, the, the one who sleeps has a form of godliness but denies that power. And he abides in death, but he doesn't even know it. And the list goes on and on. John Wesley didn't play around. <laughs> he didn't mince words. He laid it out there. But what he's saying is, as Paul is saying, awake, thou that sleeps. See with your own eyes the light and the pathway which God has laid before you. It's a way of saying awake and walk. It's a beautiful motion for our daily living. Arise and shine. Arise and walk. Awake and walk. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. Not as those who walk around with closed eyes, oblivious to the need to change one's mind or change one's heart or the change needed in a neighborhood or in the world. That's not us. Because we've seen the light. And we have the light. And we are children of the light. And so we pray, give us serenity to resist trying to change things that we cannot, but courage to do what needs to be, to be changed because there's a better way for this world. When the church awakens and walks and makes the most of his time. That's the phrase there. I've had to change the way that I awaken and walk in the mornings. I am 45 years old and the way that I arise from bed and when my feet hit the floor and the way that I get going is a lot different from when I was 35 or when I was 25. Can I get an amen? Things just hurt more. <laughs> like I have to stretch more. I have to be cautious. I can't just get up and go chase dogs and do the things that I'm supposed to do. That's just where I am. I have to watch my step. I have to run a, a systems diagnostic test. I have to make the most of my time and be careful. Your life and mine on this pathway we call discipleship or Christianity or just being the church. It requires awakening to the darkness in life, awakening to our sin, awakening to the, to the decisions we make that, that don't unite us with God and with each other and doing a diagnostic and saying something's got to give. Something needs to, to change. And then Paul says, awake, walk, and make the most of your time. It's an interesting phrase to me because time these days is ever-present. But it's so difficult to conquer or to wrangle we say things like, I need to make time for us to meet, or I need to make time for yard work, or I need to make more time for friends. But the truth is, we can't make time 
Time is already in, in motion. It doesn't matter how hard you and I pray, God is not going to give us a 25th hour in the day as much as we think we need it. We can't make time, but we can optimize it. We can cut out from our time that which consumes us or drains us. And that can come in forms of people, places, things. We need to free up our time so as to so order our lives after the example of Christ. But making more time to do all that we think we need to do, is, it's not possible. Time is not ours to make. It is ours to manage and to prioritize how we're going to spend the most important hour of the week together. When we say things like this, we're speaking about what's called chronos time. That's the time on your watch, and I've seen some of you check your chronos time in the last few seconds. Chronos time is, is a 24-hour day, a seven-day week, 365 day, year, but that's not the word Paul uses. When he says, make use of your time, he says, make use of kairos. That's God's time. Billy Graham was once asked what it was about life that surprised him the most. You know what he said? He said, it's brevity. It comes and goes like that. And those of you who have children starting a new grade, those of you who have sent children off to college and all of the excitement around going back to school and making that freshman voyage, you know where has the time gone? It's a Kronos statement though. It's not enough to do and to say and, and to be. Cairo's time is holy time. It's the grace and space between the ticks on one's second hand. It's the grace and space between the notes the choir sings and Josh plays. Cairo's time is redeemed and claimed time by God as holy. Cairo's time is time spent in worship as we are now. It's time when we return thanks to the Lord for all the times and for everything that he has done for us. When we gather here each week, and I try to remember to say it at the start of each service, this hour has been blessed to be like none other throughout your entire week. It's different, it's ordered, it's shaped. We step into the mystery of it all. It, it is such a blessing to now have more and more people coming back in, in person with all due respect to those who can't just yet, but to hear the creed, the creedal roar, I believe in God the Father Almighty. I need that voice of the church. It's a blessing to hear, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, oh what a foretaste of glory divine, coming from the pews. Cairo's time says we step into something that is different and we return through our voice and through the air in our lungs, the voice in the air that originated with God and will someday return to God. And I don't want to get all Harry Potterish on us or anything like that, but when we step into this time, we lean into the story of so many who have gone before us, the saints. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the great cloud of witnesses who join us here every single week. We try so hard to control Kronos, but it ends up controlling us. 
And so in the shedding of the old self, awakening to God's work all around us and within us and beginning to walk and discover that different way, what we find is that we are actually being kept by time. Wisdom is resisting the temptation to control time and it's stepping into an acceptance that we are kept by God's time. That's Kairos time. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise people making the most of your time by thinking about others, by thinking about how to stay connected and unified with, with one another. Paul loves a point counterpoint if you haven't noticed that about him. He always joins it with a therefore or a but, and so he says, do not be unwise, but wise, awaken from the slumber. Do not be foolish, but understand God's will, be kept by God's time, that is. Do not be filled with the spirits, but by the Spirit. Choose your inebriation wisely. <laughs> Pastor Martin Lloyd Jones understood this. He was a Welsh Protestant pastor, but he was a medical doctor before he became a pastor. And he wrote uh, about this text at one point. He said, wine, pharmacologically speaking, is not a stimulant. It's a depressant. It depresses first and foremost the highest centers of the brain and controls everything that would allow us to possess self-control, wisdom, understanding, discernment, judgment, balance, and the power to assess everything that's happening around us. In other words, everything that makes a person behave at his or her best or highest is suppressed or depressed through drunkenness. He says the Holy Spirit has the opposite effect. If it were possible to put the Holy Spirit in terms of pharmacology into a textbook, he would list him as a stimulant. The spirit stimulates every faculty, the mind and the intellect and the heart and the will, the, the mental, the emotional, the psychological ways that we think about God and each other. It's about being alive in the most alive way, that is alive to God. And I know what you're thinking. Well, Pastor Jay, Jesus turned water into wine <laughs> and John Wesley said everything in moderation so what's up or you say well I'm not a I'm not a drunkard I don't have that problem and that's fine then do this replace wine with any other idol that's the point pick your poison for there are so many inebriating distractions that prevent us from being unified with God and with each other ranging from negativity to greed to certitude, to jealousy, to anger, to idleness. All of those are not only idols, but they can inebriate us. Uh, listen, the, the end sum of all idols is that they fill us with emptiness. And they never love us back as much as we love them, and certainly not as much as God loves us. And so Paul's point is that for the believer and for the church to arise and to walk out of the darkness and toward the light, to be the light for someone else, to avoid foolish behavior and to choose wisely. It's all about shedding of the old self and allowing God to form us into something brand new. Because God is so far from being finished with any of us, whether it, early on and we celebrate that and, and through baptism, like we do so often here, or whether it's someone in, in one's golden years. God is far from finished with any of us because God doesn't operate on our time. I ran across uh, the work of a pastor this week named David McLemore who 
really had some insightful things, but he reminded me of some words that C.S. Lewis said. And at the early service, I was almost blown out of my chair up here at the pulpit when Jason pulled out a house. We didn't collaborate on that at all. God is up to something. Because C.S. Lewis talks about this passage and the life, the balance of choosing and awakening and walking by saying this, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house at first, perhaps. You can kind of understand he's getting all the drains right. He's plugging up all of those leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those needed to be done, so you're not too surprised. But, but then he starts knocking the house about in a way that, that hurts and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one we initially thought throwing in a new wing here, putting in an extra floor there, throwing up some towers, making courtyards. You thought that you were being made into a decent little cottage, but God is building a palace because God intends to come and live in that house himself. Is your old life being renovated into a new house that is fit for the king? That's the question. Because when God comes down to live in our house, we begin to pay attention. And we have an urgency about it. Um, Macklemore says that life with God is like ha life in a construction zone and like being in a war all at the same time. So next week we'll conclude this series by thinking about war imagery and putting on the armor of God. What does that have to do? We'll correlate that. But God is building something beautiful out of you and out of us. God, here's the difference, through grace, however, invites us to join the building process. Now, we've been under renovation around here for nine, ten months, going on a year. Would you believe that not one time has anyone put a hammer in my hand and said, Jay, come help? Would you believe that? Nobody has said, Jay, you've got all the skills that we need for the construction phase, the demolition phase. Not a single person said that. Because I don't. I don't have the right skills. I don't have the right tools. There's too many other things to which I need to attend. It's not the best use of my time. There's that word again. But with matters of the heart and matters of building a strong church for the community, what we find, much like our renovations, is how God becomes the architect and the general contractor and the project manager and the builder and the cleanup crew all at once and says, hey, I want you all to walk alongside me and I'm going to teach you how to do it. And then I'm going to give you the skills so you can do it on your own. But don't just stop there. I want you to lead others into the building process. I want you to lead others into the marvelous light from the dark paths on which they find themselves. There's one quote that we end with that's so good. It says, you and I are not a problem that Christ has to figure out how to solve. We are a strategy that God is seeking to deploy. We are a house that God is building so that people may find joy and respite and unity and purpose. And there's no time to waste, truly. So walk this week not as someone who is unwise, but who is wise. Not as someone who is foolish, but those who seek to align with God's will do not be inebriated by the ways 
of this world, but filled with the Holy Spirit. And if Paul is right, if we empty ourselves out and then fill back up with the Holy Spirit, we cannot keep, Dr. C, from singing. We'll sing this week of all the goodness and the mercy and joy that comes through Jesus Christ. Share that, will you? Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for not giving up on us, for continuing to build us into your house, a house not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. Give us the courage and the wisdom to continue working with you and to lead others along their own pathways. We pray for that opportunity this week. All honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. Amen.